I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening. Welcome to this evening's London Review of Books event. I'll be talking to Carol Anger about our new book, Speak Silence, in search of W.G. Sebot. Carol needs no introduction, but briefly, she has written biographies of Jean Rees and Primo Levi and co-written a book on life writing. She has also edited several books of writings by refugees. Carol grew up in Canada and went to McGill University before coming to Oxford, and she's lived in England ever since. She started by teaching philosophy and literature and later writing at various universities, Warwick, Birkbeck, the Open University and Oxford Brooks. Now, I know that many of you will be familiar with Serbot's work, but perhaps you could start, Carol, before we go on to his work, with an introduction to Serbot himself. He was born in Bavaria in 1944. What was his childhood like, and who were his parents? Hello, by the way, Caroline. Great to talk. Um, his parents were, uh, he was born in a small village, small alpine village called Wertach, in uh, a very southern bit of Bavaria on the border with, with uh, Austria. And his father was a professional soldier, which isn't going to lead to quite a bit of trouble in uh, the story, I think. Uh, and his mother was a very rooted person in uh, Verta. She'd been born there. It was her her home. So then uh, I guess there were three probably important events for us to know about in his early life there. Uh, first of all, it was a wonderful little family. He was, There he was with his grandfather, grandparents, his mother, his elder sister. His father was away in the war and it was a happy little family for him. So then the first disaster was his father comes home from the war, and the way he put it was, he said, this man arrived and claimed to be my father. So that wasn't a very good beginning. And indeed, he never got on very well with his father at all. His father was a problem, uh, partly because he was just a very traditional authoritarian uh, German, we might say, or of that generation and that time uh, father, and partly because he was a soldier and a military man and that later on became a big problem. So that was the beginning. And then I suppose, alas, we're talking about Zebald, we go, we go into loss because the first thing is that he loses Wertach, his, his, his first home, because the parents move 
into the nearby town Zondhoven. So he loses, you know, what he later saw as a sort of uh, it all really of a first good silence. You know, I talk about silence in my book. This is the good silence of the countryside and this beautiful village high in the mountains. And then after they'd moved to uh, Zondhoven, they moved when he was eight. When he was 12, his grandfather died and his grandfather was the most important person in his childhood and possibly the person he loved most in his whole life. He sounds like a wonderful man, his grandfather. He was a wonderful man. The, the grandfather was a wonderful man. And I think that Zebal, you know, picked up, learned many things from him. His love of reading, his love of nature. Uh, he, he preserved his grandfather in the way he walked, this kind of, you know, mountain lope sort of thing. Uh, and he, in his mustache, because that mustache that he always wore that we recognize him from by very often was his grandfather wore that same moustache. And Max, as I call him, as he called himself when he came to England, always kept his um, his grandfather's moustache brush, you know, and that sort of thing. So his grandfather was terribly, terribly important person in his life, and indeed in the whole family's life. His sisters felt the same. So his grandfather died when he was 12, and that was the first great loss, really. And I think that loss, alas, is key. We, none of us expect Zebal to be a jolly type, do we? And loss was very important, I'm afraid, in his life. Loss and trauma. Uh, and, you know, loss, I mean, I, when I was thinking about it, I was remembering something that Gunter Grass said, which is only lost things require to be endlessly named, and that without loss, there'd be no literature. And I think that's what inspired Zebal's literature, too. Loss and trauma, and it started in that childhood. Now, what you don't mention or haven't mentioned is his mother. What part did his mother play in his life? Well, his, his mother. Oh, dear. Yes. Uh, I suppose, you know, because there's not much conflict there to start with. And conflict is the story, isn't it? I think he always loved his mother and found his mother uh, more easy to love than his father because she was more like him. She was a more imaginative, a more open minded. She was a good storyteller. Teller. I think he, he learned a lot of, well, not learned, but absorbed a lot of his storytelling talent from her. But she was a, a conventional woman, and it was very important to her. They were sort of lower middle class family, really. And, uh, you know, his father would, after the war, rise through the army, which he rejoined after the war eventually. So they were middle class, lower middle class family. And she was very keen on the bourgeois. She wanted to rise in society, and she was very keen on bourgeois correctnesses, you know, so there would have to be white napkins, you know, linen napkins at the table and proper cutlery. And you had to be terribly um, punctual and come to supper at the right time. And, you know, so she was and she always I mean, when he was a teenager, you can imagine, you know, he he because they had American relatives, her sisters and brothers had all emigrated to the States and they would send back packages, you know, and one of the things they sent was jeans for Winfried, which was his name, W.G., Winfried, Georg. And, um, of course, this was the toast of the town. He was the first person in, in Zondhofen, the town they lived in, to wear jeans, you know. And he was very, very um, uh, style conscious uh, all his life. He always was beautifully dressed. And so he wanted his jeans to be incredibly tight, you know, the way young men do. And, and he would make his mother sew them up in terrifically tight where he once sat in a bath to make them even tighter. And she couldn't stand this. She thought this was terrible. You know, he always wore jeans. She didn't want to wear jeans on Sundays, things like that. And there was that 
proper behavior thing that she was always important to her and that that became an issue between them later on in life. So not surprisingly, that wasn't perfect either. Was he a good student? Was he a good schoolboy? I mean, good in the sense of clever, diligent. Uh, yes, I think he was both of those things uh, pretty well, certainly clever. I mean, uh, you know, extremely intelligent. And as he grew older more and more, you know, because his his reading widened and he became, uh, you know, he stood out remarkably from the rest of his class. He may have had, he always said that he wasn't a good speller, that he had trouble learning to spell. Partly this was because he was being sympathetic to a friend who had that problem. But I think it may have been true. And he he uh, often um, was careless about things like spelling in his dissertations, for example, as a Ph.D. student and so on, M.A. and Ph.D. And I think it wasn't just carelessness. I think he may have had a touch of something. You know, he was always uncertain about spelling. Um, but, you know, he wasn't, of course, a, a great student. And when he was older at secondary school. He was uh, remarkably good. I mean, so good that his teacher, his main teacher, his teacher of German literature, which was, of course, his great subject, would get him to stand up and read out his papers to the rest of the class and would even uh, ask him or allow him to comment on and even mark other students' papers, you know. And he then in, in later years actually did tutor the lower years. So, yeah, he was a terrific student, but he didn't care that much. Uh, and he didn't make a big effort. He was never the sort of class leader or anything, because, first of all, I think he always preferred to be a rebel and didn't want to be terrifically successful and admired by everybody. No, that wasn't his thing. Uh, he wanted to be the maverick, you know, and always was. And also he was very keen on all the wonderful outdoor activities that you could do. And they did all the time the, in the Alps. He, was, he skied, he swam. He was an average skier, but he was a terrific swimmer. Very good swimmer. And he was a good diver. He used to, you know, people told me uh, he uh, used to be able to, you know, stay underwater for 75 lengths or something. That can't be right, can it? But anyway, a terrific distance. Uh, so he was, he was, and he preferred that. He, you know, and they, they had wonderful life, really, because school in those days in Germany ended at 1 p.m., you know, it went from 8 to 1. And then they were out in the, in the mountains, you know, either skiing in the winter or swimming in the summer. Had he already begun writing by the time he got to university? He was at university in Germany, wasn't he? He was, yes, yes. He had begun writing in his, I would say, mid-early teens even. He wrote things in the school magazine, first of all, just essay things, but then he also wrote at least one piece of literary, you know, uh, a short story, really. Uh, when he was about perhaps 17, you know, in the later years. Uh, and then when he got to university, uh, which he studied literature and philosophy, mostly literature, he um, found a, a group of friends there. In fact, you know, very important, important fact, I think, about him, both his school years and his uni first university years was that he had a very close group of friends in both of those times, which he didn't have later in life. And the the loneliness and aloneness that we feel in Zebal's books, which was very real, I think, uh, was less true in those years because of this these these friends. And they remained the friends, particularly his school friends, 
remained the friends of his of his life, really, the closest friends of his life. And when he was at his first university, Freiburg, uh, he did, as I say, meet these two young men who were also very ambitious writers. And they formed a group together called Group 64, based on, you know, as many people will know, Group 47, famous post-war group of German writers. So they called themselves Group 64 because it was founded in 64. And they were enormously, they were going to write the great German novel, you know, all, all three of them. And of course, in the end, Sebald did, really. Sebald and did. one of the others, yeah, one of the others who was called Dietrich Schwanitz, he became a best-selling comic writer. He wrote campus novels. He became a professor, you know, an academic, and he wrote very funny, very successful campus novels which were filmed and so on so two of them actually did become and then the third one who became a psychoanalyst and didn't write for many years uh nonetheless uh, is is writing now he's the survivor of the three uh because the last Dietrich Schwanitz died as well has died as well uh so the the surviving member of the three is writing now and is writing about Max so oh, that is so interesting about, about Mm. So, you know, it's an interesting thing that he did start writing early in his life because he later claimed that not to be true. You know, in a self-protective kind of way, he said when he became a literary writer and a famous one, he, he said he'd never really intended to be a writer. It happened basically by accident because he got fed up with his academic routine. That was a cover up story. So what um, what brought him to England? Why Why did he move to England? That's a very good question. He, I think he, when he spoke about it, uh, he was very modest about it. And he basically said, well, I'm not even sure whether whether I came because I was so unhappy in Germany and, you know, with my the burdens that I felt about recent German history. And so I'm not sure. I think it might just have been because I wanted, you know, it was financial like I could earn more money in England and this sort of thing. He was always very, it was very important to him. He was a poor boy. Their family did not have a lot of money, particularly when he was younger. They got, you know, better off later as his father's career, you know, progressed through the army. But certainly early on, they were, they were pretty, you know, in the post-war years, very poor, really. Everybody was. Um, mm. So he always, money was very important to him. So that was true. But indeed, he'd been fighting with his father about, the past, the Holocaust, what did his father know, and so on, since he was 16, oh. desperately, you know, and talking about it and worrying about it with his friends, all of whom have told me about that. And, uh, you know, at Freiburg, he definitely, there were rumors about many of the professors, you know, who were all, of course, of that generation, that they had at least been, you know, gone, gone along with it all or sometimes been enthusiastic. You know, it's clear that it was largely, largely to do with that, even though, as I say, he was modest about it and suggested perhaps it wasn't entirely that. We might now talk a bit about his writing. Um, somewhere you call him the most exquisite writer. I just wanted to ask you to expand a bit on that and say why you thought he was the most exquisite writer. What, what yes. was it that was so particular about him? Yeah, well, he is very particular, isn't he? Doesn't everybody mm -hmm. recognize a Zebal sentence the moment they hear it? You know, it's the Zebal sound. Partly it is, it's that sound. So he wrote sentences that were, I suppose, in their deepest, you know, self, German uh, sentences, even in English. So these great, you know, 
collections of clauses moving on and moving on and moving on, you know, but always with very brilliantly clear grammar and, and so on. You never get lost in these sentences. In fact, they begin to lift you up and move you up, you know, until you really fly. And they're very pondering and musing, but not ponderous, you know, so they're always very reflective and he's always questioning and querying. And then, and he's always uncertain, which I think is so good, you know, always uncertain. And the, the, the narrator in particular is always, you know, he can never, he's never sure about anything. He never sure what he sees. He's never sure what he thinks. He makes decisions and then the next minute, but he doesn't do them. And he makes a decision and he only does it 30 years later, you know, so he has a curious, a captivating kind of strangeness about him. And then the books are full of these wonderful, uh, landscape descriptions, you know, of mountain ranges and cloudscapes and, and mm. rolling plains, you know, with dotted with white, with white sails of windmills. And all these descriptions are extremely beautiful, very beautiful and beautifully expressed. And yet at the same time, too, always, um, again, mysterious and so half hidden behind veils of some kind. You're never quite sure what you're seeing. So maybe it's a, it's a cloud or it's mist or it's spray from a waterfall. You know, you see through veils. And all of this is, is part of the intriguing, mysterious quality of, of mm. his writing. And then at the same time, you know, he's, he's, Famous, really, in a way for using coincidence, not in the normal sense of coincidence, but but, you know, strange things coming together that, um, you know, you have a sense that they mean something and you're not sure. He's not sure. He doesn't tell you. We don't know what they quite mean, but they point to something beyond themselves. So there's always this kind of mysterious looking beyond this world feeling, you know, to his prose. And finally, he just is brilliant on um on beautiful imagery, I think, and the way that his images connect all the stories in a, and sometimes between books, um, in a, in a sort of net, you know, of, uh, of, of, of images. So for example, his first prose book, which is called Vertigo, that's, you know, he'd written a, book, a long poem before that, published a long poem after nature, people will know, but his first great prose book, which is called Vertigo, is also for parts, as it were, the way that The Emigrants is, the, one, the next one, the most famous one, perhaps, and Vertigo is less famous. The last part, the second part and the, and the last part are about, you know, the narrator, and the other two parts are about Stendhal and Kafka. And all these four parts are connected. You don't realize this straight away. But as you read, mm. by the same sort of motif and image which recurs, which he, he took from Kafka, Kafka's Hunter Gracchus, who died but didn't completely die because when he was being taken by his ferryman over to the next world, the ferryman got distracted and missed the way and they never arrived. So Gracchus is this permanently wandering, searching in between worlds, which oh. is absolutely Zebal kind of, you know, world, Maybe. in between worlds. So that character, you know, connects all the stories. And in the emigrants, it's Nabokov. There's, there's Nabokov who suddenly appears in all the, the, the stories. So somehow these the the beauty of the beauty of the writing, the mystery of the writing, and the imagery that he uses come together with that sound, that Zebal sound, which is kind of German but not really. He's created a language of his own in his English translations because, as we're going to discuss, he did work on those mm. intensely. 
uh, and that makes this world of Zebald, which is so immediately recognizable and which has given rise to the adjective Zebaldian, which gets overused these days, I think. Everybody gets called Zebaldian. Nobody's Zebaldian. <laughs> Maybe, um, Carol, you should just mention the photographs, because any reader mm -hmm. of Zebald is immediately struck by these photographs, which often don't seem to belong to anything or to be about anybody. And they don't have captions. So just say a bit about them. Well, the photographs are, aren't they? Probably the, the most distinguishing characteristic of all, really. Um, most, I mean, he started this trend. I mean, we all do it now. I think even in fiction, as, as in his case, I mean, mm. uh, what was the, the recent, one, of the, one of the most recent William Boyd novels about the photographer? All of her photographs. It's, it's a novel. It's fiction. But that's full of photographs. You know, he, he people do this. He's influenced everybody enormously, enormously. Teju Cole does it in America. People didn't do it before. I mean, well, I'm not aware were. of people doing it in that way. Not in that way. Well, there were. There were precedents, of course. There's never, especially in German and in French literature, you know, there was a wonderful is. He's still alive, I believe, I hope. <laughs> a German writer called Alexander Kluge, who did that sort of thing, who put... Um, photographs in his work, including fictional work. Uh, and uh, I think I, I've forgotten the name of the uh, famous, um, perhaps somebody will remember, um, German, uh, French writer who did it as well um, back in the early 20th century or maybe even late 19th. So it had been done before, but not in the captivating way that he did. I mean, he made it a genre, really, you know. Absolutely. And the thing about the photographs is that you know, they make his characters seem to us so real and living because there they are. You know, yes. you can look into their eyes. It's it's terribly moving. You know, all these sad stories. And there there is this person and, you know, his family. In the case of Paul Bayreiter, for example, you have the whole family, his parents who perished in the Holocaust. There are the photographs of them. So it makes it all terribly real. And I think that's why. Well, I. I mean, it must be why I know it's why Zebal did it, because, you know, he always said that when he was growing up in Germany and beginning to be so worried and disturbed by the past, it was abstract because there were no Jewish people. He never met a Jewish person, you know, for kind of obvious reasons. Oh. It wasn't until he came to England when he came to England and he happened to go to Manchester, which has a large Jewish community, as people will know. And he, not immediately, but he got a room later on, his best room where he stayed for a couple of years. And his landlord there was a Jewish refugee from Munich. Now, Munich's in the south of Germany. It was the main big city, you know, that in Zebal's German life. And, uh, you know, here was this man who had grown up in, in Munich. He had walked the same streets, he skied on the same hills, and he had had to flee at the age of 15. He got to England and survived. His parents both died. And when Zebald met him, his name was Peter Jordan, and he was a most wonderful man. I met him, of course, to interview him then. He has sadly died since. Uh, he did live to well into his 90s. He was a wonderful man. And, uh, you know, when Zebald met him, it was a, you know, an encounter. It was a a revelation. Of course, he knew and he'd been worrying about it all his life or most of his life. But here and he always then said that the personal encounter was what was needed 
to, to, to bring things home to people. Personal mm-hmm. encounter, that's what you needed. And that's why his books are personal encounters, you know. Mm-hmm. And in order to give his readers that same experience of shock, really, shock, this is a real human being, he put the photographs in, even though his works, including The Emigrants, which is the probably the prime example of that, are fiction. They're based on real people, but fiction often is. So they are fictions, but here are these photographs. So that, that was his reason, and it does work, but then it becomes a bit of a kind of logical trap or circle, because when you realize it's fiction that you're reading, you begin to wonder, well, who are these photographs of then? I mean, they can't be of Dr. Henry Selwyn or Max Ferber, because or the other two, because those are fictional characters, really. So who are they of? Uh, and then the whole thing starts to sort of un, not unravel exactly, but take you around in circles a bit. You're going to read something to us from the emigrants. And after that, what I wanted to, before we move on, because I'd like also to talk to you about your book and how you did it. Yes. Just also say what you think the great themes of his writing are. OK, well, you know, I always read the same bit from the emigrants because it's my favorite bit. But I was also going to read a bit from Austerlitz because um, although the Emigrants is still my favorite amongst Sebel's books. It was the first I read, the way that almost everybody, well, everybody who read him in English met him first in The Emigrants. And it just, you know, completely blew me away as it blew everybody away, I think. So, and Susan Sontag. Uh, and as, yes, Susan Sontag, exactly. It was an astonishing masterpiece, yes. Absolutely. And he already had been having, you know, wonderful reviews and a lot of people in both, I mean, in Germany as well, but particularly in England and in America. But she really tipped him over into world fame. It was it was Sontag saying that that really brought him uh, world fame. So it's it's the bit I'm going to read, I guess, is the is the end of the first story, Dr. Henry Selwyn, because these stories in the book, in this book, they Dr. Henry Selwyn's very short. And the next one's a tiny bit longer. And the next one's a tiny bit longer than that. And the last one's much longer. And then you get, when you get to Austerlitz at the end, it's a massively long, long mm. book, you know, not as long as my biography, I agree, but pretty long. Uh, and this, therefore, in a way, Dr. Henry Selwyn is the sketch for all of them. It just contains mm. all of his beauties mm. together. So the end of it is, um, it's about Dr. Henry Selwyn, who turns out he's an Englishman. And turns out he's not an Englishman. He's a he's a Jewish refugee, uh, not from Germany, not from Nazism, which is of course Zebald's main theme really, but from Lithuania in the late 19th century, from pogroms, from Jewish persecution. He tells the story to the narrator, and then at the end of the story, he shoot, kills himself. He shoots himself with his hunting rifle, and so. You know, here again, it's this terrible, slow emergence of a, 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 a trauma which he had repressed or hidden all of his life. But late in his life, in his 60s or 70s, he kills himself. So this is the end of it. And the uh, narrator hears this when he and his wife return from a holiday. And he says, when we received the news, I had no great difficulty in overcoming the initial shock but certain things, as I am becoming increasingly aware, have a way of returning unexpectedly, often after a lengthy absence. In late July 1986, I was in Switzerland for a few days. 
On the morning of the 23rd, I took the train from Zurich to Lausanne. As the train slowed to cross the Ar Bridge approaching Bern, I gazed way beyond the city to the mountains of the Overland. At that point, as I recall, or perhaps merely imagine, the memory of Dr. Selwyn returned to me for the first time in a long while. Three quarters of an hour later, not wanting to miss the landscape around Lake Geneva, which never fails to astound me as it opens out, I was just laying aside a Lausanne paper I'd bought in Zurich when my eye was caught by a report that said the remains of the Bernese Alpine guide Johannes Nageli, missing since summer 1914, had been released by the Ober R Glacier 72 years later. And so they are ever returning to us, the dead. At times, they come back from the ice more than seven decades later and are found at the edge of the moraine, a few polished bones and a pair of hobnailed boots. That's it. That is really good bit. It gives one such a sense of his writing. Now, I want to talk about, there are so many questions I want to ask you. Just briefly, will you say which you think the big themes of his writing? What were the big subjects that in a way run through all the books? Well, um, I suppose the ones that run through all the books are more are more general ones. Like, you know, Zebold was, let's face it, a huge pessimist and a gloom bucket. He was. He was also mordantly funny in the books as well. In some cases, you've got to listen for that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was very pessimistic and dark about the whole of human history and about nature itself. I mean, he was one of the early people worried about the environment. You know, he was always talking about, you know, you give him a glass of water and you talk about we're going to have war about water, you know, because it's running out. He talked about desertification and, 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 you know, destruction of forests and things. So he was, he was all, and he just thought that he saw that nature was going to destroy itself and human beings were going to destroy each other and themselves and, and nature. And that runs all through, all through all this work. But I suppose, you know, the main ones that certainly for me, the way that I encountered him and the way that I think most people encountered him was in the immigrants and then finishing with the with Austerlitz, his last great work, which becomes not just because it's a great masterpiece as well, but because, of course, it's the last book become his kind of bracketed. You know, that's how we think of him. And those two great books, of course, explore those great themes that I have you know, brought out in my title of silence that he grew up with. You know, he grew up with this conspiracy of silence in his family and at school and so on about the recent past. He was born at the end of the war, as you said at the beginning. So by the time he was in his late teens, it was 20 or so years after the war. And nobody really spoke. I mean, there was, of course, a, an important um, official attempt to make Germans think about the past, face the past, which absolutely happened. And they did. But it was an official abstract thing. You, you know, you can't make people feel like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in families, there was no talk about that, about the Holocaust, about what had happened. You know, what had been these crimes that had been committed by what Zebold called his compatriots. My compatriots, he said. Uh, also, there was a great silence about something else as well, which was the bombing of the German cities and the firebombing of the German cities, which we all know a good deal about now. But that was kept very silent, too, because Germans were not allowed really to talk about what had happened to them. 
because of what they've done. And uh, so they didn't talk about that either. And so he had this sense throughout his growing up or throughout his childhood anyway, until he became, you know, was through his reading more aware that there'd been some great silent catastrophe that he had happened and he wasn't didn't know what it was. So these silences were what he writes out of, really. And the trauma that I think affected the whole of his generation, really, of course, they're called the second generation of Germans, you know, who grew up with this sense of an uncertain relationship to reality. What? You know, their parents weren't telling them things. Uh, what really happened? What did my father do in the war? You know, all of these things that traumatized the whole generation, really. And the way that they, everyone after the war in Germany coped with it was just by repressing it and getting on and, you know, we're just going to rebuild and we're going to remake everything fresh and clean and new and forget all about it. And they were extremely successful at that, as we know. Uh, extremely successful, you know, prosperous and and very clean and very, uh, very rich, really. And so Zebald had a terrible problem with cleanliness, super cleanliness and super richness all the rest of his life because he associated it with that repression mm. of truth, you know. Um, so those, I think, are the great themes. And, and this, put you put them together, it's the late emergence of trauma because people repress on both sides. The victims repress, repressed as well. And I mean, I know this to be true. Uh, I come mm. from a refugee family as myself. Uh, my parents were refugees, Jewish refugees from Vienna. They they were very fortunate and uh, never experienced concentration camps or anything like that. But even in my family, it was not talked about. The past was not talked about. And it's certainly in families that, you know, were real survivor families, survivors of concentration camps and so on, and of the actual, you know, murderous genocide. They never spoke to their children. Too horrifying. Mm. How, how do you talk to your children about this? You know, you're going to dis disturb and destroy them. And uh, so they never spoke. They never spoke. So it was repressed on both sides until later in life when often these these traumas reemerge or emerge for the first time. And that is the theme of both mm. the emigrants and Austerlitz. You know, Austerlitz, mm. this kinder transport child who has his his past has been hidden from him by his adoptive parents in England or in Wales, actually. Uh, and, he, you know, he never inquires. He He's blocked. He doesn't want to know, really. And it's only very late in life he starts when he retires, really, that he starts having these terrible episodes of uh, anxiety and depression, which eventually overwhelm him. And he has to he has to explore. He has to find out what really. And then he begins to learn what his past really was. And that late emergence of trauma is really, I would say, the key over, overriding, you know, theme. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, I don't want to run out of time because I want to ask you things about the writing of the book. But I just want to go back to the Janet Malcolm quote about how biographers are burglars. And the fact was he did burgle. He was a burglar because a lot of his characters, talk about it a bit, explain to us about these characters because he he took real people, but then he, they would. Yeah. Well, and he fictionalized a bit, didn't he? I mean, but isn't that what novelists do, you see? That's what all novelists do. You know, I'm... I, I think quite a few people, one or two reviewers and some friends of mine, you know, just private people and people who've written to me, uh, you know, after they from reading the book. Quite a few people have been very disturbed by, um, you know, his burgling, you know, and how he did steal things from people. Uh, and I kind of understand that, but I'm a bit upset that I've brought such a program on him, you know, because it is such a novelist thing to do. Uh, almost all writers are guilty of it to some extent. I think the trouble in his case was because of those photographs and because of the power of the stories, uh, the the identification of certain, you know, living people like the family of Dr. Selwyn, the real family of Dr. Selwyn, with these characters was was difficult for them because it was just too real. You know, he stole, for example, quite a bit of the story of a kindertransport child called Susie Bechhofer uh, for uh, Alfred. This is a well-known story, I think. She wrote about it. She wrote an article when she read Austerlitz saying, you know, this famous writer has stolen my life. Uh, And he did. He did steal some very important uh, things in her story. She had published a book about it. So in a way, you know, and there'd also been a television film made uh, of her story. So in a way, it was already, you know, uh, public in the public domain but he you know and the other thing to defend him is i would say that he he didn't um steal her private story he only stole her kinder transport story she had mm. other things happen to her 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 adoptive father actually abused her well you know zebel did not put that in into the Austerlitz story so he did steal her life but you know not i mean poor susie bechofer she was already a damaged person of course and he, it's true, did not um, did not respond very, you know, generously when she wrote to him. That that's true. But um, I think the worst stealing that he actually did. Do we have a time to say this was not so much of somebody's life, but somebody's work? Because oh. um, Peter Jordan gave him several oh. family memoirs way back in the '60s when they met, and then again in the '80s when Max was writing *The Emigrants*. And one of them was a, was a, a, a memoir by an aunt of Peter Jordan's who had survived the war in Switzerland and wrote it in the 60s about her childhood in Germany. And Max used this for that wonderful, wonderful diary of a uh, journal of um, Louisa Landsberg in uh, oh. in uh, uh, Max Ferber. Is it? Sorry, oh. I'm mixing it up. Which is it now? <laughs> uh, yeah, Max Ferber. And, yes. uh, you know. The thing is, he was always using other, he was always quoting and, you know, homage. His his work is full of bits of Kafka, bits of Thomas Bernhard, bits of Peter Weiss, bits of, you know, everybody. Um, But they are all published writers and they can defend themselves, you know, and we know we can recognize when it's, or many people can recognize when it's a piece of Kafka. 
but nobody had ever heard of Taya Gepard. She was called. She was a private person. He did use a lot of her best lines. You know, most of it he he transformed and turned into his own art. But even when he did that, you know, and that's more disturbing. I feel that is disturbing. And uh, if people are disturbed by that, okay, I agree, they should be. And uh, he should have acknowledged you. And Peter Jordan felt that he was very happy to have his life used for Max Ferber. He told it to, to to Max, but he said, you know, I wish he had, you know, acknowledged my aunt's work. Now. I do want to run out of time. I want you to talk about a bit about writing the book itself. Now, you say at the beginning this book was not authorised, so you were not able to talk to his wife and his child. Could you talk a bit about, I mean, you did this phenomenal amount of research. Could you talk a bit about the writing of the book? How, well, just, how it came about? Five minutes okay. to describe five the book. Minutes. How you oh. got into writing the book. Seven years, five minutes. <laughs> Well, it took Max 57 years to, to <laughs> It's the way it goes, isn't it? I mean, first of all, perhaps to to just deal with this central question of the of the authorization and the fact that um, Max's widow uh, didn't want to partake in the book, um, which, you know, I absolutely uh, understood. You know, we know that his we haven't talked about his death, but. Everybody will know that he mm. had a rather, you know, a sudden and violent death, you know, in, in, in when he was only 57 in a car crash, but which was almost certainly 99.9%, you know, according to the coroner's report, caused by a heart attack. Mm. He did have heart disease. He had bad, he had bad health throughout a lot of his life and, and increasingly uh, towards the end, of course. Um, so, you know, with that and with, I mean, I could understand absolutely that that they didn't want to partake, and I never attempted to uh, approach them. Mm. You know, the question is, did I lose such a lot? Should I not have done it? Partly because she didn't want me to, and partly because did I have enough information? Well, um, you know, she didn't want me to, but I think it's legitimate to inquire into the roots of an author's, mm. uh, you know, genius and mind, um, which is what I write about. I write about his inner life, really. I don't write so much about his outer life. Of course, we have to know that, you know, he taught at a university and so on. And in fact, some of that's very interesting. And I enjoyed it. And talking to his students was terrific. And, you know, but it's his inner life. It's what goes into his books that interested me. And for that, I felt that really not being able to talk to his family was not that not that crucial. I was able to talk to at great length and become quite close to, and I'm very, very grateful to his sisters, particularly mm. his elder sister, who was very close in age to him because the younger sister was 10 years younger than her sister and seven years younger than him. So she, you know, didn't share his childhood in the same way. So being able to speak to them and to his very early friends, you know, I felt I'm not, mm. I'm not missing that much. And in a way, if you can't say things outright, it's a help in writing because sometimes you just say something boring. If you if you can't say it and you have to find a way to imply it or to show it or let the reader feel it, mm. it's better it's better for a book. So on Thank the you. whole, although everybody has pointed out, you know that uh, that I had that problem, and I also should point out that although I couldn't um, quote directly from private letters and so on because of not having the authorization, uh, I could paraphrase. And I could uh, quote from any letter that was held in a public 
archive. It didn't have to be published. If it's publicly available, you can quote. So there's a lot of quotation anyway, which is legitimate. You know. And what I found very interesting was all the stuff about you seeing the work he did on the manuscripts and his papers on the work he did on the translations. That seemed to me a tremendous eye-opener on what he was like. Oh, they are extraordinary. He said himself, he said, it's like monomania. He said, it's like staring into a hole. <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody should go to the, his, his admirers, you know, should go to the archive in Malbach in Germany and just have a look. I mean, he was the most obsessive writer and rewriter I've ever come across. We all rewrite, all writers rewrite, but he would re rewrite if he wanted to change something in the last sentence of a paragraph. He'd start it from the beginning again, you know, and he he, he wrote, rewrote that capo each time. And it's just intensely, intensely reworked. And when, when you look at uh, his translations, his English translations, he worked intensely yeah. on those. I mean, he rewrote particularly the, mm. the three first books, he rewrote practically every line. It was a it was oh. really a, a cooperation, a co you know, effort oh. between the translator Michael Hulse and Max himself, who oh. basically, oh. you know, restored or uh, to the to the beautiful English lines that Michael wrote oh. uh, a kind of German Zebaldian sound and came up. You know, I think the result is a great work of art. The English the English so translations. Do so do I. Now, we have a lot of questions. This one okay. comes from Stephen Benson. And he says, Carolot, you have an interesting perspective on Sebalt on the issue of homosexuality, that he was scared of it, this in, in himself. Certainly around the period he wrote Vertigo. And then the question is, what is your feeling about the prevalence throughout the writing of the homosexual male characters, i.e. Finch? Helen Finch, yes. Yes, I, I mean, I think... You know, people have many, many people have noted that that there's 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 really very little uh, heterosexual love in his books, uh, very little heterosexual sex, and what there is of that uh, is pretty scary, not nice. You know, in Vertigo, it's a, a shocking thing, and in the uh, Rings of Saturn, it's a shocking thing. That's true. Uh, it should be we should add that actually Zebal has a problem with all appetites in his books. It's not just sexual appetite. For example, he has a problem about eating. You know, if you come across any eating in a Zebalt book, it's pretty repellent. You know, great slices of meat that people are kind of, you know, or a big, big piece of apple they shove in there. You know, it, everything is it's not very, uh, So he had a problem with appetite, I think. I think I wouldn't say homosexual. I would say homoerotic. I mean, I think that when he was young, he was extremely good looking, very good looking. If you look at the photographs in my book, you'll see he really was a very good looking boy from, you know, his early teens onwards. And uh, in an early novel that he wrote, the the um, uh, hero uh, is approached by a homosexual man on a train. And, you know, this encounter is, is described. He rejects him. But and he says to the man that his elder brother is, is like him. And that's a kind of classic displacement thing, isn't it? So I speculate, this has to be speculation, you know, that it was very, he was brought up very strict Catholic. Uh, there was, it was against the law. There was a paragraph in the law called 175 in Germany, which was, you know, criminalized uh, homosexual acts. And it was a scary, you know, thing at the time. As we know, it was here too. And I think he may well have been worried about his own sexuality at that stage. In fact, um, all the way through his life, you know, he, he 
he married young uh, and then later in his life, as I describe in my book, he he does finally, not until very late in his life, uh, towards the end, in the last two years of his life, he did have a, a loving relationship, a love affair with a, a woman which was extremely um, happy for him for uh, a long time. It, you know, nothing could remain happy for W.G. Zebold for forever. That's not possible. But it was wonderful for him for a time. And uh, so I feel that this homosexual element or homoerotic element was strong in him. He did worry about it when he was young because of the situation at the time. And it's true, I think, that as this, as Stephen points out, that uh, vertigo came out of a breakdown period in his life, a serious breakdown, his most serious breakdown, really, in which he even had paranoid feelings. And they are expressed in a homosexual pursuit. So there is some element in there of, a, a, you know, a, a troubled or an uncertain sexual identity. But then his whole identity was troubled and uncertain, really. His, his identity is a German you know, his identity as a Catholic and his identity as a, as a man. So all of those things were, uh, you know, problematic. Hannah Terry Wood asks, um, I wondered if you had thoughts on why Sebat called his first novel Vertigo. Did he think modern life was in some way vertiginous? Yeah, I think that's rather well put. I think he did think that. Uh, and it was to do with, I think, he was trying to express you know, the sense of alienation and not belonging and uh, floating, not knowing what world you're in, that that really his books are all about. You know, he he quotes, uh, there's some uh, bits of, I, I bring out the, the, the connection between some of Zebald's work and uh, the very famous work by Hoffmannsthal called The Lord Chandos Letter. You know, there's something about vertigo in there as well, something about a lack of, direct emotional connection to the world in a positive sense, which, you know, what what intervenes? A form of vertigo. Uh, Eric Lindstrom asks, Carol, if you could take talk for a bit about Sebat's ideas in on the controversy around the natural history of destruction. Yes. Well, he had this uh, aspect which I relate back to that group 40, not 47, sorry, group 64, his friends at his first university, where they were very, very confident, very arrogant, very attacking, you know, and he learned that from them and he practiced it in his academic writing, for example, and in some asp other aspects of his writing. And this is one. So he had been teaching uh, his students German post-war literature and was, you know, he would start off his classes about German post-war literature, they told me, by saying, it's rubbish, it's rubbish. And uh, so then they would say to him, well, why are we studying it? You know, And then, of course, he, he didn't think it was all rubbish, but he did feel that, that there was not a proper engagement, not a proper engagement with that recent history in, in German post-war, you know, literature. So then he, he decided to do a series of lectures, which he was invited to do, I think, uh, about post-war German literature, about the war, uh, books about the war uh, in Germany. And he tossed this thing off. He wrote it in his kind of group 64, you know, mentality or mindset of kind of just attacking and being and exaggerating, you know, his academics, some of his, his MA and his PhD, when you read them, they are astounding. I mean, they are so wildly generalizing and, and, 
you know, quite um, unbalanced really often. So he, um, brilliant, and they, he got his degrees, but they're very extreme. He did this theory, a series of lectures in which he just claimed, oh, well, you know, all of these books that people wrote, Germans wrote about the terrible, terrible bombings uh, of, of, of Munich, of Hamburg, of you know, Dresden, of many German cities, of course, and they're none of them any good. They, they none of them get to grips with this thing properly, and they don't write about it. They don't write about it. Well, of course, he was attacked desperately for this, quite rightly, because a lot of people had written about it and had written about it quite well. So when he came to then rewrite the book, mm. The Natural History of Destruction, he toned down the argument a bit and said, yes, of course, it's true. There are books about it, and there are even good books about it. He said Kluge and Nossack had written good books about it. But that on the whole, people could not face, could not face the reality of it, really. The reality was too too horrifying the, the, of the, the bombing of the cities, you know, because this is his other silence he's writing about here, about the bombing of the cities, the firebombing of the cities. And he said people couldn't really face it. And here were people who had been told they were going to be the rulers of the universe, you know, and they ended up being, you know, scavenging in cellars, you know, with rats. And, uh, you know, how could you face that? You can't face that. Nobody can face that. And they didn't, you know, and that's what he was. That's what he was dealing with in the natural history of destruction. I mean, it's it's an important book because it deals with that other silence, but it's not a great Zebal book, you know, because it's not got any of his beauties in it. It's not got his beautiful writing in it. It's a kind of polemical Zebalian book. <laughs> We've just got time for two more. Uh, Anthony Flavel. My first encounter with Sebot was the rings of Saturn. Do you think one of his abiding themes is alienation and not feeling at home in a society? And did he feel that way about his life in the UK? And you can't talk for 20 minutes. You've only got about two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Thank you for reminding me. Because, uh, of course, you could, couldn't you? Anyway, yes, yes I could. This is a question um, you could talk. No, you know, we haven't, we haven't mentioned rings of Saturn enough no. because of by concentrating on the, you know, uh, Holocaust elements and so on. It is a great, great book, uh, Rings of Saturn. I think that, uh, is it Anthony? Yes? Yes. Uh, is yes. right. Good. It, it, he, yes, it is about alienation. It is about, you know, he's, he's exploring, you know, going on that journey around Norfolk and Suffolk. And really, it's about English literature, isn't it? And it's about the great writers. It's about Conrad. It's about Gerald, you know, uh, and it's about art. And it's about war, all the traces of war on the on the landscape. It's even got a bit of the uh, bombing of the cities in it when when uh, Zebald meets uh, the gardener uh, who called Williams uh, Hazel, who as a boy remembers as a boy seeing the planes flying off to Germany from Norfolk, you know. Uh, and it was this alienation uh, his own? Absolutely, of course it was his own uh, in England. He never felt really accepted, although he was, but he did retain a strong accent, strong German accent, brilliant English, but strong German accent and um, South German accent or even Algoi accent. Actually, he rolled his R's in the most wonderful way. <laughs> he had a terrific voice, a very wonderful voice that you couldn't, you know, if you listen to one of his recordings, a deep, rich, you know, very sort of treacle voice, really wonderful voice. Uh, anyway, that's beside the point. You know, he, uh, yeah, he was certainly never, never felt at home in England. Oh, but on the other hand, he could never return to Germany. And yet he, he often tried. This is something people don't know. He often tried to go back to Germany, thought of going back to Germany. 
about three or four times in his English life, he applied for various things to the Goethe Institute, to a couple of universities to get back to Germany. It, in the end, he never did um, remain. He couldn't stand it when he went back. But he did, you know, so he was always caught between the two, a bit like Hunter Grachus again. You know, was he alienated? Yes. Was he writing about himself and his alienated characters? Yes. I mean, you know, Vasari said all artists paint themselves. And of course he did. He painted himself in all of his characters as well, or put mm. in his own feelings of despair. Mm. We just got a one, one more question. question. Um, this comes from Angela, and she says simply, what do you think Sebald wanted to achieve with his writing? That should be our final question. Yes. Well, you know, this might take us to really uh, that last talk that he gave. He gave a talk in his very last year, I think it was, in uh, in Germany, in uh, in Stuttgart, uh, because they were opening a new literature house, you know, house of literature. And he gave a talk there and he was he called it. Uh, an attempt at restitution, and he used the word restitution in German, Einfusuch der Restitution. And um, he, you know, his writing was, I think, an attempt at restitution, uh, always. Mm. He knew you can't, you know, it's not possible, and no writing, uh, you know, mm. and he knew that he couldn't, but he could restore memory. He said to his students, you know, people forget, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't forget, and it's the role of literature to remind them, and, you know, to mm. preserve memory. So I think that and then he said in a letter to, to Peter Jordan as well, you know, I know I can't really, you know, my efforts are botched and I can't really restore anything. But I want you to know, I hope they show that how much, you, are, you know, you are still in my mind, in my memory. So I think that's I what think, he was trying to do with his work. I think that's a very good note on which to end, though I have myself about 20 more questions and, and there are more questions coming in. But I think that's wonderful and I urge everybody to buy Carol's book, which is superb. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.